the Lockdown Lowdown, a Main FM community update. You want to hear about which markets are on and where? Do you want all the latest news from the Shire? Want to know who's doing takeaway and home delivery food at the moment? Do you need tips for activities to stop the kids from going bananas? Tune in weekdays from 8.45 on 94.9 Main FM for the Lockdown Lowdown. Updated weekly. The Quiet Carriage, 94.9 Main FM show all about books and authors, with your host, Paul J. Laverty, and proudly sponsored by Stoneman's Book Room. All aboard. Hello there, listeners, and welcome to another episode of The Quiet Carriage, 94.9 Main FM show all about books and and their authors. I hope you're doing okay out there. I hope you're not getting too overloaded with news, and I hope you're turning to books instead. I definitely know I have been doing a lot of that. Later in the show today, I'll be chatting with Susan Green from Snowman's Bookroom about what's coming out in the book world, with a particular emphasis today on memoirs. But first, Bem Hunt's New book is out now via Transit Lounge. It is called Elephants with Headlights. I recently named it in my top five books of the year. I really did enjoy this one. Now, I chatted to Bem recently about her writing process, about her life. She was born in India, but went to school in England, and now she lives in Sydney. And something Uh, pretty bad happened. I actually lost the interview due to a corrupt file Um, and that's probably down to me using a different studio during this time of the pandemic and it's the first time it's ever happened. So I was pretty devastated about that but I spoke to Ben yesterday which was actually her birthday and we agreed that instead of doing the interview again why didn't we, why wouldn't we do something a little bit different. So what I've decided is I'm going to read the first two chapters of the book, which she has agreed to, and we'll see how that goes. I mean, it's not an interview, but it will give you a better idea of what the book is actually about, and it's a fantastic book at that. First up, I want to read to you a little bit about Bem. Bem LaHunt is the author of four novels, The Seduction of Silence and There Where the Pepper Grows, have become number one bestsellers and have been published internationally to critical acclaim. She is also an associate professor at the University of Technology, Sydney, where she's the founding director of the Bachelor of Creative Intelligence and Innovation, a transdisciplinary, future-facing degree that teaches creativity across 25 different disciplines. She has a BA and MA in Social Anthropology from Cambridge University and a Creative Doctorate from the University of Sydney. Writing has always been her elemental passion, and the gift of this calling has allowed her to flourish in many ways and worlds well beyond the written word. And before I read you the, uh, I'll read you the prologue and the first chapter of a book. Before I do that, uh, let's read a little bit about the book. Elephants with Headlights. In the tradition of Ben Lahunt's acclaimed novel, The Seduction of Silence and There Where the Pepper Grows, this is a spiritual and emotional journey like no other. A richly realized and hugely entertaining story that straddles cultures, continents, and generations. An encounter with elephants with headlights is a collision between East and West, modernity and tradition, between driverless cars and ancient law, and a world that needs revolutionary reappraisal. In this world, Savitri, named after a goddess, refuses outright to marry anyone. Her brother, Neil, is intent on marrying an Australian girl called May, much to the displeasure of their mother, Tota, and father, Siddharth. But do they have the power to command love or destiny? Only the family astrologer, Arunji, knows. Yet his truth is tempered by obligations to the family that transformed his life. Characters we come to love and care for teeter on the brink with radically altered future. 
of a radically altered future, leaving questions in their wake. What is the generative legacy of tradition? Can spiritual values survive amidst personal challenges, the tragedy of a death foretold, and the momentous changes of our times? A warm and engaging novel, touched with love, wisdom, and soulfulness, Elephants with Headlights is a breathtaking story for the threshold era we all navigate. I am reading from Elephants with Headlights, a novel by Bem Lahunt, published 2020 by Transit Lounge. And just a little bit of a warning, listeners, there is a bit of adult content towards the end of the chapter, so if you do think it will offend you, perhaps just turn your radio down just for five minutes or so. This is the prologue, A Call from the Future. None of it would ever have happened if Siddharth hadn't received that call from the future. It came disguised as the usual ringtone ringtone from his smartphone. A time machine pulsing with numbers and people and deals bought the house in golf links from their family and helped him finance his outsourcing company, a motor trade mogul with a potbelly like Ganesh and an appetite for destruction like the Vedic messenger Narad. You heard of this driverless car, yeah? We're going to see about it getting out to India, Siddharth, and we could be the first, just imagine. Imagination was something that Siddharth had in fountains, especially when the pragmatics were handled by underlings. All they had to do was to go to Goa, where the science fiction stories he dreamed about as a kid were waiting, along with some people from Google who had come out from Silicon Valley to paint a picture of an India catapulted into an unrecognisable new era. The New India was a place where the entire history and forecast of the Earth existed in the same time capsule simultaneously, from the ancient world to a future still waiting to be articulated. And what fun it would be to open that time capsule when the story was told. Want to come as part of the investment team? Siddharth was known as a shrewd futurist, someone with demonic insight in his capacity as an angel investor. A businessman who could both move and shake and, even more importantly, smooth the way for the momentous changes ahead. A fearless oil of wheels for the juggernauts of business pushing their way into his country. The pandits, the new ones that is, not the priestly kind, claimed it was the Asian century, and Siddharth had no problem at all being a part of the success. Maybe one day when the future called, he would no longer be able to answer because he no longer inhabited it. But for now, he was part of the invincible subcontinent that was answering the call. But driverless cars? In India? What kind of algorithm or sensor would account for the cow that decided to give birth in front of the Toyota three cars ahead in the traffic jam on the MG road? Or the cartwheeling, cajoled child beggars by the side of the road? Or the elephants that returned home down the side streets after attending one of those grand Delhi weddings? Why, they'd only fairly recently passed a law that these elephants would have to wear their headlights at night. Would they equip the prehistoric beasts with sensors next? So you're coming to Goa? Why not? Siddharth was not one to regret decisions. He never regretted a business deal that failed, never regretted leaving behind his girlfriend in England when he returned from his studies, and never regretted marrying his wife, although there had been many there had been more than the odd occasion for regret. He did, however, regret his decision to ask his son Neil to come with him to Goa as a reward for finishing his high school matriculation. And yes, he regretted encouraging him to have a bit of fun on the beaches before planning a university education overseas. For if Neil hadn't seen May dancing through the fire that night, he could have kept him at home and he would never have met the Australian girl who had caused all the trouble in the first place. Bringing together two continents that hadn't been joined since the beginning of time. Neil was sitting on a mat, looking at the slow waves lap the shore through a tall fire on a Goan beach. The waves probably slow because he had smoked a lot of bang. He saw May first as an apparition dancing in the flames of the fire, which hovered over the inky sea. She was like a goddess who could survive any torture or affliction. How wrong was he about that? And he kept on staring at the goddess in her dress of flames and dancing hands that reached up to the bonfire's golden tips. 
She came into his life like the miracle of fire on water, the sea in the distance, as she danced towards him to sit down on the beach mat opposite him. They began a conversation, if you could call it that, even though he barely understood her, perhaps because of the bang, or perhaps because her accent seemed somehow less than English, a slur of syllables and unrecognisable cadences. Still, the words weren't as, as important as the kind of electricity that wakes you up in a dream, hard and ready for your evolutionary purpose. She sat closer to him, a hallucination, a talking goddess, trying to speak the human language. He mumbled something about being there as a prize for having finished school. I've just finished school too, she said, but Carrie and I decided we wanted to do schoolies in India. Schoolies? Neil only found out later about the tr strange traditions of her distant land, with the beaches of her hometown filled up with vomiting teenagers, on account of the fact that they had just finished their grade 12 matriculation exams. And we wanted to get away from the Thulies. He found out too about the Thulies, the guys who cracked onto the girls' schoolies, who were too inebriated to object. It was as if he was being introduced to a new tongue, this language of schoolies and tulies, together with a world where ladies could go alone to a beach and be groped by unknown men. Not even in the festive, festive rampage of holly would such allowances be made in this world. Why, he and his friends always had to work so hard to get a girl to even look at them. Yet, here was this foreign goddess who had arrived, absolutely without any proper propitiation, as if his stare alone, together with some bang, had the magnetic force required to summon her. Your parents don't mind you traveling together, just two ladies? he asked. The word lady sat well with him. Yes, she could be one of those, she thought. She was far enough from home for it not to sound embarrassing. Oh, my parents wanted to do me an overseas, wanted me to go overseas and get some life experience. You know, do a gap year, she replied. Through his bang-filled thoughts, he tried to imagine such brave parents who would want to send their daughters off to a dance on beaches in front of a thousand eyes, to accept the gap in their lives as a natural chasm and wave goodbye to their daughters' virginities. Yet no matter how hard he tried, he couldn't quite picture them. His smoky imagination tried to summon an English gentleman in a pinstripe suit, but the man didn't look like this Australian girl's father. Then he tried to imagine his parents meeting hers and felt sick. No, their parents had to be absent. The centrifugal force of authority had to be circumvented. The two young ones had to be reimagined like two colonies granted their independence, unattached now from their colonial umbilicus, free to explore each other's continents directly. And what should they do with such freedom? Nail held May's hand, and without words, he pulled her down onto a mat, which was only large enough for one person, and so required the good patchouli-scented lady to lie down on top of him, so that he could protect her hair from the sand. And this was a pleasure enjoyed by Tullies. What gods they were. For a few minutes he enjoyed the spoils of those Tullies, but when he tried to find some words in our language, he could only articulate these. Do you like India? He said this as he ran his hand under a Kala Makari dress of crimp cotton that May had purchased only that day from the local bazaar. I like you, she replied. He was Rahu now, a creature planet, the rascal god who stole the sun and ruled at his birth, according to their family astrologer. It took him a few seconds only to feel the skin of her legs, to reach up and find that she was wearing no underpants beneath that Kala Makari dress. All that was required was that first brush of his hand against the warm, trim, thoroughly modern triangle, a finger slipping into a damp cave that led to another country. One very long seaside kiss, and he knew he would do better overseas than in the country of his birth, as is the same for all those with Rahu exalted in their charts. His fate was sealed, but his overseas education would have to take place in Australia now, not at an English university like Oxford or Cambridge, or at a last resort Babson College in the United States, as his father had once hoped, because the new world he was entering had new rules, and women, it seemed, were in command of it. And that is the prologue to Bemla Hunt's novel, Elephants with Headlights.
temps de l'amour, le temps des copains et de l'aventure. Quand le temps va et vient, on ne pense à rien malgré ses blessures. Car le temps de l'amour, c'est long et c'est court, ça dure toujours, on s'en souvient. On se dit qu'à vingt ans, on est les rois du monde et qu'éternellement, il y aura dans nos yeux tout le ciel bleu. C'est le temps de l'amour, le temps des copains et de l'aventure. Quand le temps va et vient, on ne pense à rien malgré ses blessures. Car le temps de l'amour, ça vous met au cœur beaucoup de chaleur et de bonheur. Un beau jour, c'est l'amour et le cœur va plus vite. Car la vie suit son cours et l'on est tout heureux d'être Et de l'aventure Quand le temps va et vient On ne pense à rien Malgré ses blessures Car le temps de l'amour C'est long et c'est court Ça dure toujours On s'en souvient On s'en souvient On s'en souvient And that was Francois Hardy with her track Le Temps de l'Amour. And now for chapter one of Bem Lahunt's novel Elephants with Headlights. Chapter one is called The Dance Class. Arunji, the family astrologer, had once told Savitri that they were entering the age of the goddess rising, and that being named after a goddess would serve her well. You have powers that you will discover, he'd once told her once. But on that particular day when Daddy told her to call Arunji, there was no such encouraging prediction. Do one thing. Make sure you do not go to your dance rehearsal today. The prosaic nature of this advance advice stalled her. It held none of the profound or prophetic wisdom of seers long gone, nor the visionary poetry of those uttering wisdom from the depths of consciousness. Savitri held the phone away from her face and whispered to her grandmother, withered by her multiple sclerosis, who was clutching her arm in panic. Daddy, don't worry, it's nothing serious. Do you hear me? Aranji's voice continued. Under no circumstances are you to go to your dance rehearsal. Okay, okay, Aranji, I will certainly, I will be certain not to go. She felt a mixture of disappointment and rebellion. All of the family and a few friends were rehearsing for a Bollywood dance they were going to perform for a brother's wedding reception. You're just talking about today, yeah? I can go next week. Just today. Odd. Savitri was inclined to ignore the request, just as she'd ignored other predictions Arunji had made. Like the time he told her that she'd get married before her brother. What nonsense. His wedding was less than a month away. As if she was going to pick someone off the street and marry him to beat her brother to the finish line. She was tempted to go to the rehearsal anyway. What the hell? Daddy amplified the family astrologer's concerns. But how can you go, darling Betty? Remember what happened to Papa when he went to the golf course against Arunji's advice? Oh, that incident. It had been replayed on the ancient cassette of family mythology for as long as she could remember. Arunji had told her father that he had to avoid the golf course, and he'd blindly ignored the prophecy. The fact that he'd been knocked out cold by a golf ball hitting him between the eyes was all the evidence required to confirm Arunji's sibylline divinatory powers. Please, Betty. Arunji is our family. He has our best interests at heart. Daddy had known Arunji since he was a little boy who accompanied his father to wash Daddy's clothes, squatting on the courtyard floor by a square brick sink and cleaning saris and kota pyjamas and petticoats and tablecloths under many steaming suns. But as Arunji was to later find out, destiny can pivot in a day. Almost 40 years earlier, Daddy was walking past this small doby as he squatted next to his father, vigorously slapping clothes and swaying to the rhythmic sounds of cotton pounding brick. The sun was full glare, 
on white walls and his prospects in life were fully illuminated. Why aren't you at school? she asked. Daddy didn't want to wait for the answer. Here was a tiny boy, far smaller than her own son, but the same age, and his only life choices were between squeezing out cotton or letting it drip. But who will help my papa? Doubtless, the clothes needed ironing after they'd been washed, and of course Gandhi had announced that caste was a sin against humanity and God. And of course she knew the answer to her next question too. What job do you think you'll have if you don't go to school? She was interfering with this sin against God and humanity. She knew full well she was meddling with something that was embedded in the circuitry of culture. She knew she was about to handle live electrical wires in an attempt to reroute the forces that be. But what choice did she have? She was a Gandhian and a housewife. The only action she could take towards equality would have to occur within her own household. Why don't we send little Aaron to school? She asked her husband that night all those years ago. It was a contest against fate and history combined with culture. The fact that the Dobie's father was the Dobie's father's father's father had also been a Dobie didn't even need mentioning. He is a naturally intelligent and hard-working boy. She was seeing a rebirth of a kind now. The mother in her knew this much. Just let's see if he does well until 10th grade. The cosmic intervention was nothing short of electrifying. The fact that Aranji went on to become a professor of mathematics at Delhi University was astounding. But it was hardly surprising that he should also become interested in the mathematics of destiny, given those cosmic numbers that had devised this plan to redeem his future all those years ago. Daddy remained fearful after Arunji's latest advice, not for herself, but for her granddaughter, going off to a dance rehearsal where the dancing Shiva himself could be present, tapping his toes in the skulls and laying the world to waste. Her body was tortured with multiple sclerosis and there was nothing she could do physically to stop for Savitri, except use a little cunning, which she still had command of, thankfully. Savitri had hesitated at first to go to the dance class, fighting her inherited sense of rebellion, her refusal to do the bidding of men, as fostered over generations of strong-headed women who resisted permission-seeking and sought to lead. Yet Aranji's prediction had made her feel as if she was holding onto both ends of a rope in a tug-of-war competition, as she called the spare driver to pull up in front of the farmhouse. Together, she and the driver headed down the MG road with Savitri in the back, listening to the dance track on her headphones, oblivious to her grandmother's concerns now that they were travelling away from home. Only when the driver pulled over to the side of the road and opened the bonnet did she think to pull out her earbuds and ask, ask what the hell was going on. So sorry, Madame Gary Toot Gaye. Oh, shit. He told her that they would be taking a detour to see Sahib in Chattapur Farms. No way, you've got to be kidding! The Sahib they were going to see was Uncle Hari, her father's best friend from his university days in England. It's a ploy. This much was clear to Zavitri. Whenever her parents decided to drop around to her Hari and Sushila's, it was always with the intention of marrying off to their son. Mohan would have been the most convenient and suitable match of all time, but what a disaster their last encounter had been. She had been skillfully avoiding Mohan ever since that night he'd given her too much whiskey disguised in Coca-Cola. The night she'd put her feet in his lap and her head down in a cushion and she'd felt a crunch. She'd lifted his cushion and found his porno magazine with the horrible sight of a defiled goddess on the front cover. A toy, not a woman with parted plastic legs. Being a literary scholar, she tried to remind herself that even in celebrations of Durja Puja, when nine days of the goddess was celebrated, women of faith were depicted collecting earth from the haveli of a prostitute. So why not collect the earth from this depiction? She started to read the text out loud to Mohan. Give it to me, yeah? I didn't buy it. This guy left it there. So you didn't even look at it? Savitri asked. No. He stretched down next to her as if trying to read the magazine for the first time. Yeah, that position would be so uncomfortable in real life, Moen said, his hand reaching slowly up to one of her breasts as she reached, as the other reached for the page to turn it. He was leaning over her. The whiskey must have been to blame. Because she let him, this man of the world with his libido under a cushion, she let him do what he wanted. And now we are going to Moen's house. It was a detour to hell. 
The car pulled off the main road and traversed the lush roads to luxury homes in Chattapur farms. Savitri found her spine straightening. Authority has a posture. This much she knew from her work at Kamala Nehru College. She could take on the world if she had a straight back. When the car pulled up, she strode confidently up to Harry's house to knock on the door. Nobody was there. Brilliant. She waited for a maidservant to appear. Moha Sahib is here, she told them. I'll just call them. Oh, shit. Served with a capital S. Uh, don't disturb him. We only want to borrow some tools from your driver. But disturbed he was. The male Purusha energy of the universe was awakened. Mohan arrived down the stairs looking disheveled. He'd been un unemployed since his return from Babsam College, mostly because he'd been turning down jobs with the same frequency that Savitri had been turning down the boys who were introduced to her with a view to marriage. He walked over to her, his singlet covering muscles that had clearly been developed in the family gym, pulling on his longish hair, his thin legs and tight pants tucked into oversized Doc Martens. They hugged amicably enough. You been well, Mohana? Still teaching, yeah? And yes, uh, and what are you going to do with your life, Mohan? I'm going to take a look at your car, he answered, striding past her. Savitri was taken off guard. She watched him as he took a look underneath, back down, tummy and chest up, nothing but boots and skinny legs emerging elegantly from under the dark metal. She said nothing but watched as he stooped over the open bonnet, pulled at meaningless, mindless cords as if he knew what, was, what he was doing. Was he the only Indian male in a circle who knew more about mechanics than banking? Where'd you learn about cars? she asked. In the US. We took road trips all over. I taught myself. Hmm. You know, there's nothing wrong with your car, he said after a while. It works just fine. Maybe it was just an excuse for you to come and visit me. Are you joking? Come on, yeah. We should go for a drink together sometime. You know I don't drink. She realized the irony given the whiskey he'd plied her with last time. Mohan seemed apologetic, respectful even, different from before, but Savitri got back into her car and instructed the driver to continue on to the dance class. Come back any time, Mohan called after her. When they arrived back at the MG road, they were held up by a major collision ahead. People lay bleeding by the side of the road, and crowds were using any tools they had to prise open cars. Their driver jumped out to inspect the action. Savitri stayed in the car and tried to look away as she saw a vision of a soul trying to escape its body, possibly a male body, but too covered with blood for her to be sure. There are enough people around that person, nothing she could do. Take me home, Savitri instructed when the driver returned to the car calmly, even though every cell of her body was shocked at the happenstance. She felt her entire body steeped in awakened gratitude. Even for Mohan, for her grandmother, the driver. She knew nothing. There was so much to learn. Hamlet came to her mind. There are more things in heaven and earth, the ratio, than are dreamt of in philosophy. Siddharth was about to get ready to go for his monthly facial and manicure when his driver announced that his wife, Tota, had just rung and he had to go for lessons with the dance master instead. He looked at the perfect face of his Patak Filippi watch, something he usually did with pleasure because it was the last piece of jewellery that a man could wear. Sorry, because it was the one piece of jewellery that a man could wear. But even the miraculous Patek couldn't squeeze the hours up close enough to fit in his trip to the Venus Beauty Parlour, the men's floor of course, as well as a dance class with the choreographer hired for his son's wedding. Where was he going to find the time to make an appearance at the office to make sure the good-for-nothings were working? Even though Siddharth's wife had her own driver, Tota commanded Siddharth's driver as if she owned the world, which of course she did. Mehasib told me to take you straight to the dance class, he announced, and in their familiar silent submission to all things familiar, to all things female, driver and master made their way towards a room at the Taj Hotel, where a dozen or more family members were set to rehearse a dance routine that in Siddharth's mind was promising to turn the wedding into a circus. What a tamasha there would have been if my father were forced to dance for a wedding, Siddharth announced crossly as he reached for a copy of the Hindustan Times and went straight to the Delhi Times section to see if he knew anyone on page three. If the future had, be, had to belong to his son's generation, they'd be better off preparing for their brains, not their bangra. Yes, Sahib, what a tamasha there would have been if there'd been... 
If they'd forced your father to dance at your wedding, the driver lamented, repeating, as always, exactly what his master said, with a sir for emphasis and implicit agreement. Siddhartha always took great comfort in his reflection, as given to him by his driver, the one and only person in the entirety of India who had never had an opinion on anything of importance, or any opinion at all for that matter. The driver turned off the cricket, knowing that Sahib liked to read the paper in silence, and turned on the air filter of the Mercedes as the engine began to puff smoke over the perfectly trimmed lawn. There was so much pollution you couldn't get from the farmhouse to central Delhi anymore without the air filter. It was the artificial lung that made this city livable, the only way of cutting out the air that one had to breathe in between the farm, the office, the club, and proper homes. Siddharth's hesitation to dance was more complex than a mere case of lead feet. It was the heaviness in his heart that slowed him down and turned what would have been a proper traditional Punjabi shadding into a wedding. His son, Neil, was marrying that Australian girl he'd met in Goa, May. When his son had told him about his girlfriend on the phone, Siddharth had said, Why did they name her after a calendar month? It was his way of pretending that the news was of no significance, and like the month of May, she would pass. But somehow the name stuck. It spelled trouble, disruption, distraction, and disloyalty right from its first utterance. We named you after a god, Siddharth said, to accentuate the chasm between the girlfriend and his son. Yes, and why the hell? Neil replied. It was Nilkanth in full, a name for the blue-necked Lord Shiva that completely lost its sacred colour in translation. At the airport, both parents, both drivers, and Buddhi Ayer, Savitri and Niels Ayer, who had looked after them ever since they were dribbled breast milk, were waiting for his flight to arrive at Indira Gandhi International Airport, inside the terminal where it was air-conditioned. And in that same cool air, that girl, May, appeared next to Neil, pushing their shared luggage. She was wearing a dress down to the ground like Tota used to wear when she was back in college, and she had the kind of blonde hair that made foreigners look anemic. Uh, you must be June, Tota spurted out quickly. Wrong month, Neil replied, hugging his mother and began to make introductions that seemed strangely formal. Tota gave her an outsider's hug, a brief and distracted formal embrace that was simple recognition of existence, nothing more. Siddharth noticed that it was Buddhiaya, frail and wizened, the two, with two missing teeth and soft, loose skin under the layers of her white sari, who took May's hand, kissed it, stroked her face, teased out her blonde hair, muttered something in her native Bihari, and then burst into tears of joy. May May gave her boyfriend's elderly nanny a patchouli-scented hug and allowed herself to cry. I've heard so much about you, she told Budiaya, who kept murmuring meaningful vowels and consonants and touching her hair again, examining it like she might have examined the bright yellow tresses of the Barbie dolls that Safitri used to play with as a child. As soon as they arrived back at the farmhouse, Neil announced privately to Siddharth and Tota that he intended to marry May. What are you saying? his mother asked. You hardly know the girl. Uh, Mummy, we uh, live together, Neil replied, so I know her a lot better than you knew Papa before you got married. Is she pregnant? Tota asked, directed a bullet. May wants an Indian wedding, so no, she's not pregnant. Neil responded emphatically, as if to ward off the premature assassination of his heirs. Then he added with a hint of cruelty, and we have every intention of returning to Australia to settle after the wedding. What does she want? What for does she want an Indian wedding then? You'll get to know her, Neil added. You'll see. She's not what you expect for a, from a Ferengi. It was true that May had a passion for all things Indian, which was why Siddharth now found himself on his way to a dance rehearsal for their wedding. She had more passion for Indian dance than he ever could. Siddharth was far more comfortable pulling out his credit card to pay the wedding organisers than he was putting on his dancing shoes. But for now, the dance was his duty. And if there was something that Siddharth had observed since he was a child, it was his obligation to do the needful in the delivery of duty. The car pulled up at a detour due to a horrific incident on the road, which triggered Siddharth's heart to go into one of its familiar involuntary spasms. But nothing to worry about. He turned on his GPS and navigated along an alternative road until they pulled up slowly in front of the pillared lobby of the Taj, a grand entrance of the whitest marble with every square inch defying the Delhi dust. The doorman opened the passenger door for his Siddharth to get out. He asked the concierge for the hall where the dance practice had been organised and was promptly shown to a room where some loud, filmy music was playing. 
Tota glared at Siddharth as he entered, and Neil and his cousins started complaining that this was no time to arrive, halfway through the class. The master was a young boy, lithe, and most importantly, accommodating. After Tota whispered something in his ear, the dance master said, Madame, no problem, we will be giving him a separate dance to perform, so we won't have to be starting from the very beginning. Sir, you come here and please start making this step like this, like this, like this. Rolling his eyes, Siddharth joined the others at the front of the line. It was clear that the joke was on him. He was the klutzy-footed father of the groom, and somehow that meant that he was the perfect foil and centerpiece. The master showed him some awkward moves, which Siddharth mimicked, making them more awkward still. His was a different routine, but he couldn't see what the others were doing because they were all behind him and tittering, probably at him rather than each other. Now I want you to be putting your foot out and turning it like this, backwards, left, side, right, side. Siddharth's foot twisted from left to right, taking off in any direction, like a deserter, while the rest of him jiggled from side to side, his body inside his jacket, almost as still as a mannequin. Siddharth couldn't see the gyrations of the small family group behind him, but he could hear their giggles, and the way their feet tapped to the rhythm of the song, intoxicated by the dreadful beat. Perfect, the master shouted. There's only one problem, sir, you are forgetting to smile. Siddharth squinted and let one corner of his mouth rise to the occasion, reproducing the exact smile of Amitabh Bakan in an early performance as Don, an arch-gangster's undecipherable, undecided smile. Yes, we're all happy now, the master concluded. We will make everyone dance with us for the shadi. Everyone will be happy. And that, listeners, is chapter one of Bemla Hunt's novel Elephants with Headlights written and published 2020 and out now via Transit Lounge.
That was Tiger Tone with Wandering Eyes, and now it's time for a couple of announcements. Harcourt Valley Vineyards is now bringing their award-winning wines, ginger beer and raspberry mead to your door, offering free delivery in central Victoria and Melbourne. Their lockdown wine box special includes a combination of Riesling, Grenache Rosé, Barb Shiraz, Cab Sav and Mount Camel Shiraz. Check out their Facebook page or Instagram for details or visit harcourtvalley.com.au. Harcourt Valley Vineyards is a full-bodied sponsor of Main FM. Knocked on your door. Lifehouse are designers of simple, serene buildings. We craft spaces and forms that are sympathetic to the environment in which we live and to the needs of our clients. They connect with the eye, mind and soul. Our firm of designers focus on the best energy-efficient outcomes, producing beautiful, unique buildings. Contact us to discuss your project. You can find us at lifehousedesign.com.au. Lifehouse Design, creating smaller footprints, award-winning passive solar design and a proud supporter of Main FM. And now on the quiet carriage, it's time for one of my favorite segments of the month where we check in with Susan Green, author and bookseller at Stoneman's Bookroom. Susan, how are you today? I'm fine today. It's a very, very grey day, though. Good day for uh, for curling up with a book, I it's would an, say. Oh, it's a perfect um, what about you? How are you going in lockdown? Oh, you know what? I'm starting to get a bit used to it now, and I'm actually starting to, dare I say it, because I know it's awful and what's going on, on around the world is terrible, but I'm starting to enjoy it a little bit. Um, being mm-hmm. a bit of a homebody anyway, you know, I like lots of time to read. I like lots of time to write and I like lots of time to spend with my family. I'm not actually uh-huh. hating it, to be honest. Dangerous. It's suiting you almost too oh, well. I think I was built for this. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> but um, yeah, and coming into winter as well, you don't really want to be out and about, especially on a day like today. It, but um, It's uh, prime curling up in your cave time. Exactly. Isn't it? Especially days like this so yeah, yeah long story short i'm, I'm doing okay how, how are you mm, yeah yeah that's all that's all good i i will say though i'm missing um in terms of books because it's what we're here to discuss books mm-hmm. i'm missing the ability to go into bookshops and libraries mm, and yeah, um course. and browse because yeah. um you know it's it's really such a part of the um of the book buying um book world is yeah. is the browse and uh at the moment you you sort of need to you know if you want to buy books you you read reviews and you look online mm-hmm. and you you know you're aware of what's new but um for me there's just nothing like yeah, <laughs> walking around and looking at those covers and seeing what what sparks my interest so uh, it, it's a bit different and um you know, books apparently, uh, just the nature of them, if if there was uh, coronavirus rampaging around in, uh, you know, in a suburb, in a, mm. in a in a town, books are actually would be a fine thing to, to pass them on apparently and we right. certainly can't spray them and disinfect them. Yeah. So, you know, the bookshop uh, in Castlemaine, Stoneman's, is, is doing the right thing. Of I'll just course, say yeah. for, for now that um, Stoneman's has uh, got, got new releases. Um, the, uh, uh, the distribution, how mm-hmm. the publishers and distributors are, are pumping those books out. Mm-hmm. Things are taking a little bit longer than uh, they used to. I was talking to Tammy the other day. And she was saying, you know, a new release might be due on, you know, the first of the month and we'd mm-hmm. usually get it around about then. Well, you know, there's a lag a week, even a couple of weeks at the moment, but but they're coming. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the bookshop is, um, there's somebody there at the phone or to um, take email orders from mm-hmm. 10 till 4, Monday to Friday. Mm-hmm. And at the moment, there should also be someone there from 10 till 4, over the weekend, mm-hmm. um, I'm not quite sure how um, whether that's uh, going to continue. But at, at this point, um, that's the news that there's someone there over the weekend as well. Wonderful. So people can uh, phone, they can uh, order their book, uh, or the book might be in stock. They can come and knock at the door, and um, there's contactless um, payment there, mm-hmm. or they can pay over the phone. Uh, you know, credit card over the phone, mm-hmm. and uh, have their have their 
pick up their book or um, within Castlemaine environs, um, uh, Tammy or Wendy are, are delivering books to people also, especially those people who, who can't get out or for, uh, for whom it's you know not a good idea to be out and about. So, That's great. yep, books are still flowing. <laughs> and the number 54703451? To place your orders and free home delivery as well. That's fantastic. And today yeah. we were going to focus in, I believe, on... I'm focusing on memoirs today. Yes, um, good. Uh, and I'll, and I'll, I'll be quite up front and say I haven't read any of these ones. Mm-hmm. These are ones I've just... They're new releases and they're just ones that really interest me. And I thought um, might interest... So one or two of them actually on my must-buy list. I've mm-hmm. actually ordered two of them. Um, but I just thought they were ones to, interesting to um, to alert people to. And the first one is, and look, just this, I think this is an absolutely awful title. Um, <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> uh, she's a writer called Rebecca Solnit. Uh, okay. She's a um, writes memoir and nonfiction essays. Mm-hmm. Um, I've loved books by her. Um, Wanderlust, A Field Guide to Getting Lost, The Far Away Nearby, they're treasure troves, they're essays, personal, philosophical, they're, they're complicated and intense. It's like following someone's insanely interesting interior dialogue and mind-wandering. And um, so, for instance, um, The Far Away and Nearby, nearby um, combines sort of memoir and meditation on nature and philosophizing with with topics like the Marquis de Sade and Mary Shelley and Frankenstein and the the land and seascapes of Iceland and the the um, the, the Grand Canyon and uh, a backyard apricot tree it's right. just really really complex stuff and she's and here's, here's the thing that I don't <laughs> like it's the title of her memoir which is called Recollections of my non-existence. What do you think about mm, that title, yeah. Paul? Can't say I'd be rushing to pick it up. <laughs> anyway, um, I, however, I'm really looking forward to to this memoir just because I, I, I love her her I writing. Do you know the name? Yeah, as an essayist, I've yeah, it does stick so, out for me. Yeah, yeah, I recognise the name. Just, yeah. uh, mm, just just doesn't do it for me. But anyway, look, she she describes. Um, uh, the, just her formation as a writer and a feminist in in 1980s San Francisco, right? And um, it, it basically exploring this is this is the blurb, but uh, sounds like she's exploring all the all the forces that were there at that moment um, in time. Yeah. Of uh, 80s San Francisco, I suppose. Um, Fascinating time. Societal change. Yes. And um, gay rights and. Mm. Uh, just all of those things. Um, she's she's just exploring, you know, what made her so and what made her a writer, and you know, sounds sounds really really interesting to me. Yeah. The next one I've chosen is one called "I Choose Elena" mm-hmm. by Lucia Osborne Crowley. Okay. Um. So, um, it's uh, well, I suppose there's a genre that's sometimes people call rather uh, slightingly the misery memoir. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But I suppose one thing I will will say about the the so-called misery memoir is that when people, and especially women, talk, uh, speak out about um, things that have happened to them, trauma, Mm -hmm. um, it gives other people permission to take these things more seriously yes. to talk about them not to feel shame and not to hide so um i choose elena um she was 15 uh, lucia or lucia i'm not sure how she would like her name to be said mm-hmm. and on track to be an olympic gymnast and she was violently raped on a on a on a night out and it sparked a series of events that left her ill with, with chronic illness for more than 10 years yeah. and um, the blurb says that um, her path to healing began only a decade later when she first told someone about her rape and she eventually found solace in writers like Elena Ferranti and that's the, the title mm-hmm. um, and this is a work about rediscovering 
rediscovering two things that seem to be uh, mutually exclusive, so vulnerability and resilience in the face of this of this trauma. And the uh, once again the uh, the blurb says that the author explores what has been proved but not yet widely known about trauma, bringing our attention to its cyclical and intergenerational nature, how trauma intersects with deeply held belief, beliefs about the credibility of women and how trauma is played out again and again and again in the fabric of culture, government, judicial systems and relationships. And that will point me to um, another book which has um, been um, really widely talked about. It's been one of the, the biggest sellers in the bookshop actually mm -hmm. of late uh, called The Body Keeps the Score okay. which, and I have forgotten the author, I'm so <sighs> sorry, I should have written that down, but um, it, it, it the, the Body Keeps the Score brings uh, out all sorts of amazing and apparently widely known, but as, as this is saying, not, not widely known enough um, knowledge about what trauma does to um to the body, to the to the brain, right. to our ability to concentrate and learn, um, to how we are able to control ourselves, control anger, and how trauma is actually um, intergenerational. How it's heritable. I've got the title. So, of, uh, the the author for you here. Uh, yeah, Bessel van der Kolk. That's that's right. right. Yes, so not van an easy one to remember. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and it's been out for a few years, oh, right. um, but it's just so, you know, that's not new and that's not a memoir, but um, mm -hmm. you know how you go down a rabbit hole, don't you, when yeah. you start reading, um, <laughs> one a... thing leads to another. But this book, um, I Choose Elena, just sounds uh, amazing. So on to something quite different, mm -hmm. uh, a new a new memoir that um, <laughs> will have a lot of political junkies um, oh. Uh, highly activated is Malcolm Turnbull's I A know. Bigger Picture. Yes. <laughs> I was hoping we wouldn't talk about this one. You were hoping I, I would, wouldn't? I was just thinking, well, I just saw him on 7.30 report and I was like, what timing, you know, when half the nation have lost their job, him to release a book, having a whinge about losing his job. But anyway, no, yep. we will. We will. I'll put my but political anyway, affiliations aside and we'll, we'll discuss it. <laughs> A lot, a lot of people, however, um, will will um, <laughs> read this with mm. um, probably uh, gnashing their teeth. Yes. Um, I guess for me, I'm not a not a liberal voter. Surprise, mm. surprise. But um, <laughs> uh, Malcolm Turnbull's um, uh, time as 29th Prime Minister seemed to be a time of really, really lost opportunities. Yeah, very forgettable, wasn't it? Yeah lost opportunities mm. so um you know he he um he's he stood for um you know even though on that end of <laughs> that end of politics he, he he could have stood for a a lot of good things mm. uh, apparently and I, I have i have i've just turned a few pages and um and read some excerpts um i it seems to me to be well written, mm -hmm. to be to be really readable and and yeah. quite um, entertaining uh, prose, not mm -hmm. clunky. Um, so I, I think if you're a, a um, some if you're a political junkie, yeah, you may well find that. I couldn't imagine riveting. myself reading it, but I imagine for, <laughs> you're right. Political junkies. <laughs> All right, we'll go to something quite different <laughs> now. This. This is new, and look, she's the the. Uh, it's a memoir by Miranda Tapsell. Okay. Uh, top end girl, and look, I wasn't oh, aware yes. of. Yeah. I wasn't aware of Miranda Tapsell until uh, my son um, um, said that he'd gone to see a chick flick. Um, well, I, I know her through Play School. Actually, top, she's on Play School. Yeah, yeah. Well, he'd gone yeah. to see Top End Wedding, which was yes. I, I saw it too, and. It, and it, yeah, it was a, it was a was a chick flick, but just thought it was so great to see um, an Aboriginal yes. actress, a, a Indigenous actress in a chick flick, just like yes. yeah. And she was in so um, what? the Sapphires as well. 
and the sapphires as well and she's been in love child um and doctor doctor and she's absolutely gorgeous so Mm -hmm. um this is uh from kakadu to can not Mm -hmm. cairns (laughs) in (laughs) queensland but can in france um an entertaining uh thought-provoking memoir um from actor Activist and described in the blurb as Australia's sweetheart. And she says, ever since I was 13 years old, all I wanted to do was perform. It was an unusual Mm -hmm. dream for a kid from the Territory. What I wanted for my life was a world away from what people knew and loved about the top end. So even though I've moved south to become an actor, the Territory's never left me. It's the place I go when I want to feel whole again. Um, So it's... it, it just looks really interesting because I guess when she was growing up um, and wanting to be a performer, she would look for Indigenous faces. Yes. Um, and she wouldn't, and so and few she wouldn't of them. see any. But gee, yeah. isn't she a bit young to be releasing a memoir? She wouldn't Sorry? be. She's a bit young to be releasing a memoir, wouldn't she? Be she'd be. Well, yes, I guess so. 30, but a memoir is really different to an autobiography. I'm right. So um, she is, and yeah, I I agree. But you think of all the sportsmen. Well, and I'm saying men, because it often is men. You think of all the footballers that um, that produce memoirs. So uh, because I think what's probably going to be, I haven't read it, but what I think Mm -hmm. is perhaps going to be interesting is. is that the, the the really negative narrative around Indigenous lives mm-hmm. and Aboriginal women especially, um, she's changed that, changed that for herself. Mm-hmm. And I, yeah, I, I just think it would be an interesting read. Mm. More um, interesting than Malcolm Turnbull's. I agree with that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> um well she's certainly a lot prettier than him um susan green we'll have to leave it there thank you so much for for talking with us again and we we hope to check in with you again shortly about another topic that's a pleasure and we'll speak to you again thank you bye 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 and that's all we have time for today on the quiet carriage a big thank you to bem lahunt uh, for letting us read the chapters of her novel elephants with headlights um also if you have a book club you can visit her website bemlehunt.com that's b-e-m-l-e-h-u-n-t-e um she is offering um to do zoom interviews to book clubs if uh if you have read that book also a big thank you to susan green at our sponsors stoneman's book room please support them I'm across all the socials on Paul J. Laverty. The Quiet Carriage is on from 1pm Fridays, repeated 4pm Mondays on 94.9 Main FM and MainFM.net and also available to listen to on Spotify and beyond at any time. Until next time though, keep reading. Hi, I'm Marie Edwards, your State Member of Parliament for Bendigo West. Castlemaine and district, including Campbell's Creek, Newstead, Malden, Tewton and Harcourt are important parts of my electorate. If you have any questions or anything you wish to discuss that concerns the state government, I am here to help. Please phone 5410 for an appointment. Spoken and authorised by M. Edwards, 16 Lockwood Road, Kangaroo Flat, funded from Parliamentary Budget. Marie Edwards, supporting Main FM. No agenda. Music, interviews, mostly music. Saturdays, noon until 2pm on 94.9 Main FM. Make it your soundtrack for Saturday. Got the social isolation blues? Shake them off with Main FM. Keep in the loop with your local community broadcaster. The best little station in the nation has something for you, so tune in. We're streaming at mainfm.net slash listen live and broadcasting at 94.9 FM. You'll find a show to suit you with everything from gardening and good books through a wide range of music and specialty programs. We're with you here on 94.9 Main FM. <laughs>